Welcome to the MLHS podcast. My name's Ian Tullick. I'm here with Anthony Petrielli as always. Anthony, the Leafs are coming off of their best November that I can remember in my lifetime. How are you feeling about things right now? It's hard to argue anything they're doing. They look sick. Yeah, I remember after one of their report cards, Ray Ferraro said right after the LA game, I think it was, this team, he's breaking everything down going, the offense is great. The defense looks good. Power play is good. Penalty kills great. They're getting Vesna caliber goaltending. I don't know what else to say. Everything's going well for the team. I'm feeling really positive for once. I know that we're used to negativity on this podcast because as a Leafs fan, you just expect pain every single year. But I'm looking at this team, trying to break them down objectively, and I literally think they're the best team in the NHL based on what I've seen. I'm feeling really optimistic about their chances right now. But of course, it's the Leafs. Everyone's saying, wait until playoff time. Let's see if they can do it in the playoffs. And that's fair. That's very fair, given their last five years. But I can only really evaluate the games in front of me, and I can only, on a Tuesday night in November, you can't win a playoff round. You can only win that game. And, man, they had one of the best Novembers I've ever seen from a hockey team, let alone the Leafs. Any hockey team just dominating for a run in this stretch of play. Everything's going well for them right now. What did you want to start with in terms of our analysis today? Before we get into the analysis, I think you touched on a really key thing that I've kind of been grappling with for a few weeks now where it's like look realistically if you're talking anything negative about the team as it currently stands and has been performing for about a month you're nitpicking at best otherwise you're just being a dick like they they look great it's hard to say otherwise at the same time people sit there and go well, well, we'll find out, you know, March, April, things tighten up. You know, now you're playing teams for the third, fourth time, whatever the case is, playoff series, matchups, blah, blah, blah. And like on one hand, you go, okay, well, there's nothing they can do about that now. On the other hand, like you said, it's fair. Like this group has earned that. They have earned that black eye. You know, and there's nothing that's going to change it until it happens. At the same time, I quite enjoyed, like, they're in Anaheim on Sunday, and there's a goalie go chant in the arena. They're dunking on Anaheim in their barn, and there's a bunch of Leaf fans there, and they're chanting go Leafs go, and it's audible, and it's hilarious, and you kind of laugh, because all summer, what did we say? Like, how do these games matter, and like, like, who cares? But here they are lighting it up, and fans are taking over road arenas, they're chanting soup. They're chanting, go Leafs, go. Like, you still have to enjoy it. You still have to enjoy the ride. You can't just be miserable waiting till March and April. It's just like, it's just don't do it then. Like, don't be a fan. Like, I don't know what to say. So one of the biggest differences I've noticed from this year to last year, and this is eye test, this is numbers, the penalty kill has improved substantially. And coaching impacts on the penalty kill, I think, make a really big difference. It's something where team structure really matters. You should be able, in theory to insert player X, insert player Y. And if you're following a really good system on the PK, you should be able to limit the zone entry, which in turn limits shots against 
and that's really all you can do on a penalty kill. You want to limit those seam passes as well. But for the most part, the biggest aspect in terms of limiting quality chances against, it's the zone entry right away. And that's Eric Parnas's research from years ago that proved that the best way to predict power play performance is which teams efficiently gain the zone and set up in formation. I think the Leafs have done a tremendous job in the neutral zone at preventing that from happening. And then when they get in zone, I think when you look at how aggressive they are at applying pressure to puck carriers, David Camp along the wall forcing a player, whether it's the quarterback of the half wall or the defenseman picking up the puck at the blue line, he does such a great job at taking away that space and forcing a turnover. Can you say it? Can you say I like David Camp? Just say those exact words. I, Ian Tulloch, like David Camp. <laughs> The hockey player. So I love I love nothing more in life than uh, being wrong. <laughs> Travis Dermott is something I think about on a daily basis. <laughs> just asking myself, gee, like what what was I thinking here? David Camp has been so good on the penalty kill. We can talk about him at five on five later. But on the penalty kill, he's winning over sixty percent of his faceoffs. He no, after the faceoff is what I care about more. He's such a good player in puck pursuit he's so good at using his long stick to take away passing lanes to apply pressure along the wall and to force turnovers he does it in the neutral zone but more importantly I think the biggest difference in how Toronto is as a team their philosophy in zone in the past they used to let teams do a lot of passing if they wanted to I remember Toronto versus Boston you, you see it a lot where they just kind of back off and give them what they want. And when you have skilled players on a power play, they can pick apart a penalty kill pretty easily if you give them enough time and space. This unit doesn't give them time and space anymore. You have David Camp, you have Mitch Marner. Even when it's Kasha, Kerfoot, when Engvall's out there, we're going to see Mikheyev come back, and he's going to be a great addition to this PK because he's also great at that pressure that you can apply on the PK. In zone, they're more aggressive, and sometimes it results in them getting beat on a cross-ice pass, but for the most part, I think it results in them forcing more turnovers, forcing more icings. As a result, I think they have the third-best shot rate against on the penalty kill this season, and that's the most predictive stat we have for future success, at least in the public sphere. So I'm blown away with how strong this penalty kill looks this year. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, I'm picking up what they're putting down on the PK. I, th- I think they do a good job of jamming teams when they're trying to go through the neutral zone. They have proper you know i know people roll their eyes at this but for literally years i've been dying for a face-off specialist and just a defensive center and that's camp like i'm just happy you know even even last year when they brought on riley nash who just unfortunately never got going here who is a good defensive center like he's not good at face-offs and that was always one thing that kind of just bothered me and you know i get it over the long haul it, it can be shown to be a negligible thing at times but at five on five on special teams it makes a much bigger impact i think than us nerds are willing to admit it's nice to have a guy that can actually go out there and just win a draw like do you remember when hyman was taking them on like half an acl he was losing 40 percent, or no, he was losing 60 percent of them he's only winning like 40 percent of them yeah in the playoffs there and babs was throwing him out there for like literally no reason and he would just lose the draw and they would get dummied and I think Boston's power play clicked it. I'm not even going to throw out a number, but it was an embarrassing number to say the least. It's like, it's nice to have a guy that can just go out there and, and do those things. Like I think they've lost a lot of team speed over the years, but I do think the remaining players with speed that they have are deployed well on the PK. Like Kerfoot does a good job on the PK. He's great out there. I think at times he bothers me. Cause he's just like, he's not always strong enough to like 
win battles to get the puck out or he'll like flub up up like a clearing attempt i'm like what's going on here but like his speed through the neutral zone they do a good job of using him there they do the same thing with cache cache what's the right way really andre kasha is how i pronounced it okay i'm gonna go with what you're saying on this um obviously when mikhaev comes back he's gonna be a beast on it i hope i hope that guy can just round into form properly i know he's working on his shots right now and you know that's that's a good thing for him to work on in practice i don't know if that's ever going to be a thing but like you know they i think i like their pieces on the pk i think that they're well suited for the system that they have into play and it's funny we're talking about the pk and it's like barely even mentioning the defenseman yeah so uh, pk1 is muzzin hall for the most part and pk2 is riley brody I see the idea behind it because those guys play together at five on five, so keep them together on the PK. I think you can get Lilligren out there a bit more. I know they have used him a bit here and there, especially when Hall's out of the lineup. He comes in and plays PK two, and they usually go Muzzin Brody on PK one. And again, I totally understand that. Do you think Hall is going to like improve at some point this year? I think he has to, just because I've seen him play better than this. I don't think this is the true version of Justin Hall. Like, I couldn't believe it when I looked this weekend. Like, he has zero points in 17 games. Like, to play 17 games at 20 minutes a night, and I get it, you're a D-man. But, like, he's not out there with scrubs. Like, he's playing 20 minutes a night, usually with the other top six forwards. To not even have a puck, like, go off your ankle and, like, to Matthews and get an assist. On his pairing, he's he's not the puck mover. Sorry, Jake Muzzin is not the puck mover. He defers those duties to Justin Hall a lot of the time. So if you're passing the puck up the ice to Nylander, Tavares, sometimes Matthews, Marner, and you're not picking up a secondary assist, a primary assist even, I think some of that's got to be a bit of bad puck luck, a little bit of it, but I think a lot of it is also poor decision-making with the puck, specifically on the breakout, but also in the neutral zone, in the offensive zone. We've seen Hall play a lot better. I got a question on Twitter here when I put out the tweet. How long before the Leafs swap Lilligren and Hall? Or how long before the Leafs realize Muzzin Hall shouldn't be a thing anymore? And I can understand the frustration because Jake Muzzin throughout his career has historically performed well with any partner you give him. And the fact that that pairing at 5-on-5, five five, I don't want to say they're below 50% because they're still above 50% in a lot of the metrics. But it's way closer than you want it to be. And it's, it's the worst they've looked together as a pair. How much of that do you think is on Muzzin? And how much of that do you think is on Hall? Because I think... It's fair to say neither of them have played their best hockey this year, but it's tough for me to tell because Muzzin coming off of the injury doesn't look quite like himself. But then again, even at his best, he looks kind of clunky out there. His game is winning battles one-on-one, winning the front of the net, making small little subtle plays that a lot of the times you don't even notice throughout the course of a hockey game. So how much of it's Muzzin? How much of it's Hall? Well, Justin Hull had like, cold symptoms right like they thought he might have had covid but it wasn't and he was battling an illness he lost a bunch of weight right and he just doesn't look right like physically um like he obviously fights it at times but the thing that stands out to me is that his skating doesn't stand out because that was always the thing that i liked about him and even even when he even before the season that Babs like healthied him for like seventy two games or whatever it was, the season before that in training camp, in preseason, I remember watching going like he can actually skate and like he's six two or whatever six three, and he's not embarrassing with the puck like he can probably play in the league, and his skating is not standing out at all. Like when I know when people like would make fun of like the McDavid stuff and whatnot. But he actually had runs last year against McDavid where he was like 
as good as anyone can do, like handling his speed and like backpedaling well and using his feet to make plays. Like he was legit good. So I don't think they're even remotely close to giving up on hole, to be honest. Like I get what people are saying, but ice time speaks and he's always in that 20 minute range. Like he's consistently been there. I think if anything, they're sitting there going, we know what this guy can be. And like, we want to get him back there. And honestly, at this point, I would say, what is a better win for them? Like moving Lilligren up there and like hoping that it goes well as a rookie for like the stretch drive in the playoffs or hoping a guy who's now a vet rounds into form. See, I just want to see it. I want more data points. We have an 82 game regular season here. I would give Lilligren looks for sure to be clear, but at like, teams respect veterans for a reason like that and like traditionally it's older teams that do well in the playoffs there's a famous tweet i don't know if it's michael blake mccurdy's it's someone on on my nerdy hockey twitter that i look up and it says i wish that coaches instead of playing a veteran that we know is bad would place a, a rookie who might be bad and it's this i don't idea. think cole's bad though and that's fair but it's the idea of the unknown it's the idea that we don't know what a muzzin lilligan pair would look like for 10 games would they have really good results? Because the eye test of those two together, I think, works really well. I think Lilligren's a better puck mover than Hall. I don't know if that's fair to say. He's more dynamic, at least, with his stretch passing. He's probably not as good of a skater as Hall, which is funny to say. But I like the way Lilligren defends the rush. And I like the way he advances play up the ice on the breakout. So you combine those two factors and you play him alongside Jake Muzzin. I bet you it would work. So... I'd just like to see it, just to know what it looks like. But your argument is, can we get Hall back up to the standard he was at in those previous two seasons? Because if we have that, then we have a shutdown pair that we know we like. We have a Riley-Brody pairing where the yin-yang of it seems to work really well, where Riley's one of the best offensive defensemen in the league, and Brody is actually one of the best defensive defensemen in the league. So it tends to work out pretty well. I mean, Keith had a quote recently where he was talking about which defensemen are coming in and out of the lineup, and he mentioned Hall... Lilligren and Dermot and then he got to Sandine and was and you could tell he was thinking well Sandine doesn't deserve to come out of the lineup Sandine's been playing amazing he he didn't put Sandine in that boat which was I get it but at the same time it's like dude well one of those one of those four guys you mentioned is like actually in your top four when he's in the lineup and like he wasn't the guy that you mentioned so I get what he's saying though because it would be wild for them to take out Sandine based on how good he's playing and also based on what he means to the organization as a whole, which was like, he was, he was the guy that you might recall even last year when we were talking, going into the deadline, I was like, Sandine's the one guy I wouldn't get rid of like Robertson, whatever, but like Sandine, no chance. This might be a good time to mention just how dominant Sandine has been this year, albeit in sheltered minutes. Obviously I need to mention that as a Travis Dermott truther, but Sandine leads the league in offensive impact right now in all of the metrics. I know it's sheltered usage. I know that. But there are other third-pair defensemen who get similar usage who aren't doing that. And it matters at some point to be destroying the minutes you've been given. It matters. So define what you mean by offensive impact. Expected goals for, scoring chances for, shots for. Even when you try to adjust for usage, they rank Sandine at the top. This is evolving wild. This is money puck. This is natural stat trick. All the, all the metrics you can pull up on Sandine show that when he's on the ice, Toronto's generating a crap ton of chances offensively. 
they're not giving up too much defensively, but it's more about the offense that they're generating when Sandine's on the ice. You can see it eye test-wise, too. Whenever Sandine gets a shift with Matthews or Nylander in the offensive zone, his passing ability just opens up so much for them in the offensive zone. Shayna Goldman, I bring up this article all the time because I think it helps prove just how dominant Sandine is offensively already. At the time of the article, he was second in the league to Adam Fox in primary shot assists, which is a pass leading directly to a shot. It's one of the best predictors we have for future offense. And Sandine's already phenomenal in that category. Yes, it's sheltered usage. Yes, you don't quite trust him defensively against the other team's best players yet. But he's someone who I'm looking at their lineup going, man, can you find a way to get him in the top four somehow? Can you slide Muzzin over to his wrong side? Can you slide? Like, can you find a way to do it just because of how good he's been at dominating play at five on five? So I think I think those numbers are just a little inflated across the board. And I like Sandine, and I think he's really good, but not just because of the sheltering. He's The players that he's primarily played with at forward are essentially the entire Tavares line and the entire Matthews line. Those are the players he's been on the ice with. The only reason I say it is because I'm not watching games straight up and saying Sandine is, is dictating offense himself. But if the puck comes to him as part of a sequence of events, I trust him to make a good play with the puck 100%. But I'm not watching going, this guy is ripping the puck up ice. Everything is running through him. He goes out there and he is the central focal point of driving the offense. I think he does a good job when he gets the puck. I think he's a good playmaker. I think he understands the game well. I think he does so many other things. But I think he's benefiting off of playing with other really good players who are actually driving offense. And he does a very good job of being complementary to those players more so than he's, you know, he's not out there with the fourth line and the fourth line sits there and goes sick. Sandine is going to dominate this shift for us today. Yeah, he's not a puck-dominant player. He likes getting rid of it quickly. He likes making quick little one-touch passes to an open teammate. Which is fine. It just, it just comes across strange to term him as, you know, highest offensive impact defenseman. I, just, I think he's more likely just a good defenseman with the puck who's being put into great spots and he's capitalizing on them more than, you know, I think when I think of an offensive impact defenseman, I think of a guy who's actually going out there. You're thinking of a guy who's up in the play, Morgan Riley, for example, yeah. someone who's directly involved in the at, like Eric Carlson before he lost his Achilles guys who are act like they hop over the boards and you're going, okay. This guy's about to take over a shift. I know someone brought up the idea of, in a coach's meeting, is his name circled on the board? That's someone who is really impacting things offensive. And here's the thing. I don't know. Is that a flawed way of looking at it? No, I just want to be careful on how we term. I just want to be careful on how we term him and describe what he's doing. Because I just don't think he's, you know, an elite driver of offensive play. I think he's a really nice player to have when you're in the offensive zone. My, my biggest disagreement is just, I think he's already one of the best passers in the NHL as a defenseman. And it's, it's borne out in the metrics. I know he's sheltered. I'm well aware of that, but... He has seven assists in 22 games. Well, I mean, he's not playing on the top unit. How many minutes a game is he getting? You can per 60 of these things. You can look at the predictive metrics. If you're second power play unit on this team, I mean, you're getting a steady shift and you have Jason Spezza right there, and you're playing the majority of your five-on-five five minutes sheltered with four of the best players in the league, you should probably... And, and if you're an elite passer, 
you should probably have more than seven assists in 22 games. I, I think when I looked it up, his, his primary assist per 60 ratio was, I think it was in the 95th percentile or something like that last I checked. And I'd love to look at those assists because I wonder how many of them are off of his point shot. He is an interesting way of, of generating offense. I don't know. I, I like the way that he roams around without the puck and kind of a lot of players shed their man with the puck. He sheds his man without the puck. And then yeah. helps create a quick little one-two passing sequence that lead to a little, whether it's an odd man rush from starting in his own end on the breakout where he sheds his man, and then it's a four-on-three dice. Or if he does it in the offensive zone, sometimes it creates a quick little three-on-two or a quick little two-on-one down low. And I think those are plays that help create a lot of offense, and it's borne out in the results when he's on the ice. I just don't want to throw too much at the guy too fast. I think he's perfect in the role that he's in where it's you're going to be on the third pair you're going to get second power play time we're going to shelter you offensively and if we're losing we'll give you a little bit extra ice time because you'll help us offensively and I think that's all he's suited for this year pretty much and I'm fine with that I think just dominate those minutes be really really good in that role the Leafs have a veteran top four group what's the path forward for him to grow as a player that's my biggest concern is because the Morgan Riley contract is something I kind of feared because I, I saw Sandine stepping into more of that offensive role. I don't want to get into the contract stuff now. I'll just say I think that's like next year's problem. You just don't even worry about it now. Just like they're trying to win this year. So let's evaluate this the way it is as a team that's making a run in the year 2021, 2022. Yeah. And anything beyond that is a next year Kyle Dubas's problem. And if, if Sandine was saying, you know, if he came into the room and said, which I don't think he would. But if in a world where he walked in and said, I think I'm capable of more, like, give me more ice time. What if Patrick Sandin tweets it? <laughs> no, he's he seems he seems like a good dude. He seems like but a really the, nice uh, guy. So Swedish. Yeah, I think he would just sit there and look at the kid and just say, we're trying to win the cup this year. And you have a role on that team and you should be more than grateful and call it a day. And we'll reevaluate adding an opportunity next year, but be really good. And He's a guy where I look at even last year in the playoffs, which I thought was still, which I still think is unfair the way that they kind of shoehorned him in after having basically not played all of that season is he loved, and this is a good thing, but it's hard in the playoffs. He loves making like proper breakout passes, especially using the center if he can. And he got burned a few times with that in the playoffs because in the playoffs, it's less likely that it's there just because the checking is tighter I think he needs to work on developing that. I've always been fond as coaching and being a kid playing hockey and all that of calling it the oh shit button. I know Jake Gardner famously never had an oh shit button. Yeah, Jake Gardner never developed an oh shit button, right? Where you just say for those of you, what does that mean? And sometimes you just have no options and you can't force a play, especially a pass to a center in the middle of the ice to try to get a breakout. At some point you just say, oh shit. I got nothing to do. It's going off the glass and out. And he got burned a few times just because he held the puck too long. And that's fair. That's very fair. But can I push back just because I get terrified when coaches encourage players to keep going off the glass because I think you're you're hurting your ability to actually maintain possession. I don't think you encourage it. I just think you point out times where he's forcing it and you say at some point you have to sit there and say there's nothing here. And that's, that's the thing, like Sandian, even if you told him to go off the glass and out every single play, he wouldn't do it just because it's not in his nature as a player. Nor should he. That would be insane. That would be insane to tell him to do it. Just at some point, there was the one goal where Perry ran him, 
when he came up the wall on his on his right hand side as a lefty. And those are where a couple key turnovers happened. One happened in the regular season. It was identical where the right play was a bank pass off the boards or some kind of play off the boards because they had numbers up the ice and he was outmanned in his own zone and he tried to make a better play, turned it over, quick goal against. And same thing happened in the playoffs. Yeah. And so I think they're good just the way it is. Just keep him on the third pair. I think you can give him some spot duty looks to try to collect some info on it. The same way they did with swapping Nylander and Marner. And I thought he was, I thought Keefe was totally fair. I want to give him credit for that. I, I, I actually really enjoyed his analysis on flipping them back. He just said basically Nylander and Matthews are two good players, but I didn't really see anything where it was two good players that were making each other better. It was just two good players that happened to be on the ice together. I know Justin Bourne pulled up a few clips of their goals and just kind of showing that William Nylander's an interesting player in, in terms of his play style because he likes lugging the puck. And I know we've said this about someone like Joshua Hosang in the past, who's obviously not as good, but the idea that he wants the puck on his stick. And it's not always easy to play with those types of players. Sidney Crosby has famously not always been the easiest guy to play with. Phil Kessel didn't like playing with him. And I remember when I told you this last year and you gave me shit for well, it. I want more skill on the ice, and I'm terrified of people I... putting less skill <laughs> on the ice. That's kind of my concern in the long run. That's actually why I like Nylander with Kerfoot, because you don't want the puck on Kerfoot's stick. But if he just skates around and plays fast and creates turnovers and doesn't actually handle the puck very much. I'm all here for it. And Kerfoot's biggest strengths are also Nylander's biggest strengths in that it's transitioning the puck up the ice and making passes in the neutral zone. And if Kerfoot's goal is to use his speed and to make a pass to Nylander off the rush, good things will happen, right? So you wrote this in your article recently. You said Kerfoot's a left winger. We need to stop talking about him like he's some versatile player who can play center, who can chip in at 3C, because realistically, you look at the results, when he's a 3C... It hasn't been good. When he's the driver of a line, it hasn't been good. As a complementary left winger to other skilled players, he's actually been very effective. So He's a nice complementary player. But let's stop calling him a center. He's a left winger. Yeah, I think, I think the other mistake people make too in general is they see a guy. And Kerfoot, whereas I would say bunting is probably a little bit more of a spot duty. You throw him in the top six a little Ooh, bit. You take I strongly him out, disagree. You throw him back we'll in. get to this in a sec. And, and Keith said the same thing. Not that I'm kind of appealing to his authority, but he was picking up the same vibe, which is why he put him down for a few a few games. Oh, and I honestly, at the time, I agreed. In my report cards, I was really upset with turnovers. Where off the rush, Nealander would make a pass to Matthews, or Marner would make a pass to Matthews, would make a pass to Bunting, who kind of flubbed it, and then the rush chance was gone. And the opportunity cost to that is rough. You know, you want to capitalize on those chances, and if you have a unskilled player who's losing the puck too often there, if the puck's dying on his stick. This was my biggest frustration with Cody Ceci's. He was on the ice with great players, and the play kept dying on his stick. That, that's going to cost you at some point. But that's also why he's a spot duty guy, because you're not going to sit there, because that's what he, that's what you're getting out of him, which is fine. I mean, you're paying him under a million dollars, cares. But an actual top six forward, you, you put them in the top six, and you keep them there because that's what they're paid to do. They're good hockey players. Like, they're really good hockey players. So, Kerfoot, I think some of his production right now is a bit of a mirage because his on-ice shooting percentage is yeah. still pretty high. If you look at his rate of goals compared to expected goals. His personal goals. shooting percentage isn't that high, though. And his personal shooting percentage, I think he's, like, career 14% or something. He's actually always... But I think it's because he barely shoots. I, I dove but, into it a bit nerdier for, for, for fun. And um, his XG to G ratio... Or, the, the expected goals he gets versus the actual goals, he's always been pretty close to that. He's not someone who's outperformed it historically. 
He's outperforming it pretty hard right now. And I think that's something that we should expect to come back down to earth just based on his career averages. I couldn't believe his two finishes this week. There were two that I would have never thought that he would have ever finished. That backhand was was Yeah, I got to give a guy credit when he does that. I just, sometimes when we see the puck go into the back of the net, I think it messes with our brains and tells us that, hey, this player's playing good now. And when the puck doesn't go into the back of the net, oh, this player's playing terribly right now. Which is why I try to always focus on the scoring chances, just because those stabilize much quicker and you know who a guy is more or less. And with Kerfoot... I don't know. The scoring chance rates last year were brutal. This year, when he's playing with the top talent, obviously they're pretty decent. But the rate he's scoring at right now is not going to continue. And I think people need to realize that. So the thing I wanted to mention as well about Kerfoot in the top six, I think the mistake that people make is they sit there and say, he's playing in the top six. Ergo, if we just drop him to the third line, because he's been good in the top six, he'll be really good on the third line. But it doesn't work that way especially doesn't work that way for a guy who is supplementing the real drivers of the line and doing a really good job of complementing them, but he's not driving the line. You know, even if you go back to um, when the Leafs had Clark MacArthur and Nikolai Kuhlman, and they were both really, actually really good hockey players that were capable of driving play. Yeah, if you dropped those caliber of players to the third line, they would be sick in that role. Because those were actual full-time top six forwards. Kerfoot, kudos to him for what he's doing. He looks really good in the role. I'm happy for him. I want the, I want them to continue using him the way that they are. But that's the way to use him, I think, now. I think it's pretty clear. I think, I think Nylander has shown that he is good enough that in case of an emergency, you could put Kerfoot at center as long as Nylander is there to actually carry the line. Nylander needs to be attached to his hip. Yes, yes. In that scenario, he works as a center. But I think if you, I think when people sit there and it's going, okay, Mikheyev's going to come back and, you know, maybe you can throw Mikheyev camp Kerfoot out as a checking line or something. And eh, it's probably, maybe. Who's going to do the puck transporting? Who's going to make plays offensively? No one. Maybe with Kasha could work because Kasha is actually a really good hockey player. But And this is where I wanted to say, when you're talking about driving a line, Kerfoot doesn't drive a line. Kasha drives a yeah. line. Oh, my Kasha's God. Kasha's really good. I hope he's okay. And this is the first injury. This, is, this, this is has the always been injury. the frustration with Kasha. And here's the thing about, quote, unquote, injuries is I think he's always going to be banged up with the way he plays. I don't think he's ever going to be 100% this season. And when you get to the playoffs, when you get to April... What percent is he going to be at? Because let's assume he started the year at 100%. Let's assume he's at 70% right now. Is he even at 50 by the time April rolls around? Can you even play him? This is dating lifey, and this is, I don't want to get too close and get burned. (laughs) This was my whole thing with him. Like, I don't want to get attracted to this guy because I know it's just going to break my heart. (laughs) I've been attracted to him for years. I loved him on Anaheim. (laughs) I loved him there. But just when he got here and then he hit game 15, I was like, oh, man, I love this guy so much. I just know it's going to. Just end so poorly. The most cash of play was late in a game that was totally the Islanders three nothing game. Yeah, so and he dumb. went balls to the wall and like almost died trying to get a scoring chance. And I'm, yep, that's the most Andre Cash of play I've ever seen because he got a scoring chance out of it. When you look at his XG, it went up, but he almost died, and it wasn't worth it. <laughs> so on one hand, it is funny, but on the other hand, that was the kind of play where I went, he's he's gonna get hurt for sure because it's just a dumb play. It really is, especially if you're that guy and you've had that injury history. The game's three nothing. There's under a minute left. There's and he and he just he walked right off and went right into the room after. 
I think he has one speed. I don't think he can play any other way. If he could, he would, wouldn't he? I mean, at some point, you kind of have to smarten up a little bit. You have to sit there and just say, I've barely played hockey the last few years, and it's for a reason. And 3 nothing game, float around, man. Float around. What? What is David Camp without Andre Kasha at 5-on-5? I think that's my question here because I love what Camp does defensively. And the more I dive into some of the numbers that aren't publicly available, there's some interesting stuff on Kasha where he's a surprisingly good puck mover. And he's incredible at not turning the puck over in the neutral zone and in the defensive zone, which I think are a big part of the reason he doesn't allow many chances against because the Leafs usually have the puck when he's on the ice. And that's a good thing. Now, offensively, and in terms of actually generating something off of his own entry, I don't think he can do anything. And that's where Andre Kasha does all the heavy lifting. And a lot of the times, he'll create a scoring chance out of nothing. He'll go on a lone wolf rush, beat two guys with his speed, Kenny Wu, go right down the middle and somehow split it and get himself a decent scoring chance. Without Andre Kasha, watching uh, Nick Ritchie, David Camp, Wayne Simmons' third line... That was a bit painful because no one was making plays off the rush with the puck. Wayne Simmons was passing it into shin pads. Nick Ritchie was, I don't know, insert Sheldon Keith positive quote about Nick Ritchie. I guess he was doing those things, but man, uh, I'm not loving that Nick Ritchie contract. I don't think he's going to keep shooting 0%. I think some of these pucks are going to go in and some of the scoring chances he gets from in tight are going to go in. But man, I don't know how effective Nick Ritchie is at 5 on 5. I don't know how effective he is on the power. I don't know how effective he is as a player overall. But my my point, my greater point here is that if David Kampf doesn't have a driver on the third line offensively, I'm all of a sudden kind of worried because I think it's a fair expectation that come playoff time, if Andre Kasha is hurt, that's something that is very likely. I think it's more likely than not that that Kasha will be hurt come playoff time. So if he's not there, who the heck is driving that third line offensively? I think that's a real question. Oh, there's so much to digest there. At, at some point, I also I just have to say, at some point, Richie's going to score, and then he's going to score, what, 5-10 and 10 or something? That's That has to happen, right? Like, at some point, he's just going to get the monkey off his back, and he's going to go on... I don't want to call it a full heater, because Austin Matthews goes on a full heater and throws up like 10-10. and 10. By the way, That's he's a, due for a full heater at 5-on-5 five five at some yeah. point. I mean, Matthew, Matthews is three and three right now, so it, it could it could get pretty silly. And he, and he's still shooting half of his career average at five on five right now. Like, that's gonna bounce back. Yeah, and I'm not even fully convinced he looks as dangerous as I would expect him to, but it'll come. So Richie, at some point, it's the monkey's gonna come off his back, and it's gonna be figured out. I actually have no doubt. Um. That third line, though, you're right. And I think the bigger thing, too, is if it's not Kasha that's kind of making things happen on that line, the other guy you would want to make things happen on that line is also hurt, which is Mikheyev, right? Is he a make-things-happen guy offensively, though? He's not a produce, but he's like he's out there and he's making an impact and he's super noticeable and he's just making things happen with his speed Mikheyev Kampf would be super annoying to play against if I'm an opposing player, but then I you have to think about who's the third player on that line. In theory, you could go Engvall and just have three dudes who are super annoying, can do some stuff in transition, but once you cross the blue line in the offensive zone, I don't know if you're getting anything. I think you're just cycling. 
I think Camp's instincts are really good. So I think he is good when he is in an F2 or F3 situation where he's the secondary player coming in on the forecheck or the third player reading the play. He loves staying high. He loves keeping his man above him. Or sorry, staying above his man and preventing odd man rushes. That's the David Camp style of hockey. Which is what he should do. So And that and that plays off really well when you have a guy like Kasha who just is a kamikaze and just goes in there <laughs> reckless abandon. That was a Wayne Simmons quote. It was a great way of describing it. Yeah, or you have Mikheyev who isn't as reckless, but at the same time super aggressive on the forecheck in there right away and then that plays to camp sort of hanging back and reading the play and that's why I think it would be helpful so without those two guys I think the third line is going to be kind of a waste I'm wondering if Kasha gets hurt and I think that's again a very realistic possibility here it's already happened do you trade for a forward knowing that he's going to be the guy that you want to quarterback that third line essentially because I think the Leafs are going to be trading for a forward You'd assume that you want to play that guy in the top six and play him close to 20 minutes a night, or, you know, 16, 17, 18 minutes a night. But what if you pick that player to drive your third line and throw him in PP2 and maybe one of the PK units? Depends on who's available. I know Thomas Hurdle's the best name available. Philip Forsberg, if he's available, is just incredible talent. So can I be that guy for a second? I just kind of want to be that guy, sort of. Be that guy. I don't know what you're about to say, but be that guy. The one thing I'm very selfishly as a Leaf fan hoping to see in the Olympics is a little preview of Matthews and JT Miller. I just want to see it. I just want to take a look and see what it looks like. Because he had some of the best... When he first arrived in Vancouver, had some of the best forechecking numbers, had some of the best 200-foot numbers. I know his first half of the season, it was Selkie quality, the way he was impacting play. Vancouver's a tire fire right now, so anyone on the roster is probably available for trade as of right now. I mean, man, Elias Pettersson, I know he scored the other night, but he I have him on my fantasy team, and he's killing my fantasy team. <laughs> it's just, it's not going well. But I like I like JT Miller's jam. Um, he's, he's a goal scorer. He's got a bomb. I think he's the kind of guy in, in recent years where teams have been able to really focus in on Matthews and really get away from Marner because he's not really much of a scoring threat. I think having another scoring threat on the line who's that good of a shooter just totally changes the dynamic of that whole forward line and then the group that follows. I mean, even with Hyman, and Hyman was basically tracking for back-to-back near 30-goal seasons, Hyman scores because he's a dog in front of the net, but Hyman's not scoring much from like the top of the circle or whatnot. If JT Miller actually has a second in the top of the circle, it's there's a decent chance it's a goal. And this is the spacing element that mat- the NBA teams are obsessed with. You want to have more shooters on the floor because it opens up space for everyone else. You're thinking Mitch Marner is not a shot threat. Michael Bunting, as much as we love him, not a shot threat from distance. So if you see Austin Matthews on the perimeter, everyone can kind of overcommit to him because you're not fearing the shot from distance. It's like, sure, I'll set up JT Miller then. That'll be okay. So I'm selfishly hoping that we see it in the Olympics. I mean, Vancouver's obviously a dumpster of a franchise. They are ripe for the picking. I do think they have a few good players in that organization. I, You know, and I don't know if you saw the JT Miller interview this week after one of their many recent losses, but like he was almost in tears. Well, it's sure actually he tough to watch. To work out in Vancouver, and it's just it's not working out right now. 
Yeah, and he's he's the prime candidate that he leaves there, and he is so happy to be out of there. He's got this year and one more year at five point two five million. So that's tough for Toronto because it's that next year. It's that next year. I'm not sure if you can squeeze in. Who are you trading? I know, at this which point? makes it you, tough. But I I think he would be just an absolute piece for this team. I'm wondering if a rental makes more sense. And I know Dubas doesn't love rentals. And I get why, because you're trying to acquire an asset. It's better to acquire a guy that you can lock up to more than one year of a championship run. And if that guy's been with your team for 16 months, he's much more likely to resign. And it's all about acquiring the best asset you can. Teams don't really like do this, but why not trade for him and then just flip him again at, at the draft? For a team that has three draft picks right now? I've always wanted to see more creativity from general managers in hockey. We don't see it compared to other sports. When you, you see, Even when it comes to something as simple as draft pick protection, that only started recently. NBA teams have been doing that for well over a decade, and NHL teams just learned about it recently. <laughs> I'll always say it. The salary cap sucks. I like having elite, elite teams. There's not one team in the league, especially with Tampa just LTIR and Kucherov to eternity. There's not one team in the league where they walk into the arena and, and you're going, these guys are just unbelievable. You know, Golden State had their run where basically they walk into your stadium and, and you're going, this is Globetrotter stuff. Like, this is crazy. There's nothing we can do. They're just so I much better Colorado than us. Colorado was doing last season. They broke a lot of the records when it came to scoring chances and expected goals. Like they they were they were killing teams last. Is this is this when we talk about the divisions from last year? Because this has been such a topic now. I see where there's three Canadian teams in the top ten this year, and everyone's going. Canadian division wasn't nearly as bad as people were saying it was. I'm one of those people. So let's get into that discussion. All right. Uh, Last year, I would argue that Toronto was a top 10 team in the NHL. Let's go go five on five for now because five on five is where most of the games are played. Come playoff time, you're in a game six, game seven situation. Most of the game is going to be at five on five. Leafs were a top 10 team in the NHL last year. As much as I hate the Habs, when they had Philip Deneau and Thomas Tatar and Brendan Gallagher and they had all those guys, Carey Price, I thought they were a top 10 team in the NHL. The second Daryl Sutter got hired by Calgary, their five-on-five metrics were ridiculous. And they're still ridiculous this year. The difference is they're getting goaltending from Jacob Markstrom. So my argument is the Habs fell off this year, and the Oilers' power play is going supernova. So they've kind of replaced the Habs in that top ten. But for my money, the Canadian division wasn't anywhere near as weak as people were making it out to be last year. And this year, I don't think it's that much better. I think it's almost as good as it was last year. I think it's... I think there are good teams in Canada. My argument is this. I think we all knew the Leafs were good. I think we always knew the Leafs were good. I think Calgary and what they're doing this year is absolutely irrelevant because of the Daryl Sutter effect. And it was something that we fawned over when he got hired by, by Calgary. We were instantly going, I don't really want to mess with Calgary because Daryl Sutter is going to get them to lock shit down. They look like 2014 LA right now. It's ridiculous. If they get a lead, they're probably the hardest team in the league to face. You know, if if Campbell's not going to win the Vezna, it's Markstrom at this point. There are some other names up there. Bobrovsky's been unreal this right? year. Shesterkin's yeah, Bobrovsky, been great. Bob has been good. He he's been he's been wild, Bob, because I never know what to expect from that guy. Just in overall anything. So I don't know. I just look at Calgary and say what they're doing this year is completely irrelevant to last year, where they had Jeff Geoff Ward 
coaching them for three quarters of the season. And then Sutter basically walked in and said, you know, his interviews when he first got hired the first few weeks were some of the funniest things all time. No one was talking about them. He would basically just walk in and say, the other two teams' top centers are better than our top two centers, and there's really not much I can do. And just, I can't teach Sean Monahan how to play defense. <laughs> yeah. It'd be like, why do we lose? And he sits there the way he puts his tongue on his lower lip and goes, well, their centers were so good and ours weren't. And you go, okay, well, let's, tell us how you really feel. He didn't Middle give a shit. To Elias Lindholm. So, yeah, he did not care at all. So, I just, they were not good last year. Under Daryl Sutter, I thought they were good. I thought they were good under Daryl Sutter. They were, but it was too little too late, so it didn't matter. Okay. And the Habs were almost the inverse, to be honest. And now we're seeing it this year finally play out. Well, I think they lost Philip Deneau and Thomas Tatar and Carey Price and Shea Absolutely. Weber. And I think that has an impact. And also getting rid of Claude Julien, because there's no way they would be this dog shit at five on five right now if Claude Julien was still their coach. He would probably game it up. They'd probably be 52 We'd be looking at that. He roster. does that How with teams. You can have a team of complete nobodies, and you go, "Wait, they have fifty-four percent of the shot share. How the hell are they doing this?" Yeah, he does not care. So, most of that Habs time was really just a complete mirage, and then they just blacked out in the playoffs. I don't even want to get into it. And Edmonton, I just thought was a complete paper tiger. I think Edmonton legitimately improved in the offseason. I mean, not on defense. They probably didn't, but the Zach Hyman addition alone was just so good. Warren Fogle's a nice one. Right, like they just they improved their forward group enough that you know I think Edmonton's going to come back down to earth at some point. I think betting on forty-two-year-old Mike Smith or whatever it is is a terrible bet. And then we look at the rest of the Canadian division: Ottawa's awful, Vancouver's awful, Winnipeg has been decidedly average. They've been to much better than last year, way better. Winnipeg? At five on five, they're actually yeah. like decent this year, whereas last year they were tire fire. I'm actually surprised. And they, and Winnipeg was really bad last year. Basically, there wasn't a single team in that group other than the Leafs where you wouldn't sit there, whether it was because Sutter was just taking a dump on pretty much his entire forward group last year or because Edmonton didn't have any scoring depth beyond basically two players last year or the fact that Winnipeg had zero defense or the Habs really should have had zero offense, but then the Leafs just decided to mail it in for three games I mean, pretty much. Edmonton's power play wasn't this good last year. They're breaking all sorts of records, yeah. and not just in the actual goals going in, but the process. But that's going to just come down to reality. But reality is still going to be the best power play in hockey. Yeah, but I, for the Leafs' purposes, though, playing in that division, my ultimate thing there, was it hurt them because all of those teams had gigantic holes that you could poke into them. I mean, isn't every team flawed in some respect? For sure, but, you know, I'm sure you can find holes in Florida, but yeah, Florida's actually Yeah, actually, it's pretty weak. tough to find holes in Florida. I'd argue it's hard to find holes in Toronto right now other than their inability to win the first round of the playoffs. Agreed. Agreed. But it'll be important, and, and this is one of the worst things I've ever seen in NHL scheduling. It pisses me off so much. They don't play Florida until something like March 27th. That is embarrassing. Whoever made that schedule should get fired. That You should get fired. And you know what? It, it's bullshit, too, because if you're Dubas, you want to see them play Florida th two or three times before well, the deadline. Well, you're going to get to see them play Colorado with uh, McKinnon, who will be in the lineup. By the time you're listening to this, it might have already happened. They played well against Calgary. How fired up are you for that game? I'm so excited. Well, Colorado's probably my favorite team in hockey to watch just because of their style of play. 
I love how much they bet on skill and talent and guys who can make plays off the rush. So seeing guys like Justin Hall and Jake Muzzin forced to defend that, I'm going to be watching that very closely. Yeah, and, and all that to say is I just I don't think the Leafs were battle-tested enough come playoff time last year. Through they didn't no run real into fault a truly elite team in the league. Yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't some teams where... They never had a game where even if they did lose, where you sat there and went, the other team actually just played better than us today, and it wasn't... At, like we played well and they played well and they beat us because we weren't sharp enough in certain aspects of our game. Were there a few Montreal games that were kind of like that at five and five? It's hard to think back. There are 56 games. They're just sitting there season. going, why didn't you play better? I mean, aren't you going to say that about most Leafs losses? The no, sometimes. No, that, there's losses where you sit there and go, honestly, they played really well. Just, and they got goalie. They, like, what can you do? It's hockey. Not even that. Just, they played really well, but they played another team that's also really good. For me, that was how Calgary fans were probably feeling about the way that they faced the Leafs this year. That was one of my favorite games of the year. Also, Boston, where I thought the Leafs outplayed a good team who actually played pretty well tonight. This is what you want to see from a championship-caliber team. Yeah. So, it the the not playing Florida thing for so long, biggest sham in the league, Dubas should be writing Gary a letter that says, whoever made that schedule note, please, please provide their pink slip on my desk as proof because that's a sham i think the leafs will be much better served this year going into the deadline i would like to think we'll have a bit more of a proper understanding and battle tested and dubas tried to do this last year too right he said i'm not doing it and i'm I'm not buying until they've proven to me that they can deal with some adversity and whatever whatever they didn't buy after the david ayers game they looked at trading barry yeah which was fair. I res- he, they should have traded Barry, but I respect that he was he he said fuck these guys basically. <laughs> that's how we all felt in the moment. Yeah, and he did it, and I that's the that's one thing he's done more than anything else since being GM, where I respected him so much. He watched that shit and just said, "There's a zero percent chance I'm helping this team," and I love that. And obviously, this year is completely different circumstance, but this year. I think what happens is is you have to look at these key games a little bit tighter and a little bit closer and say, what are the things that are standing out as potential issues? And I think if they're in the Canadian division, I think a guy like Michael Bunting or even Nick Ritchie look really good in the top six or at least serviceable enough where you're like, this isn't a big problem. Can we do the Bunting bit soon? Can we do it now? Absolutely. Okay. Just, just want to say, though, I think the reality is, though, when you're going to play the other top teams enough – and to be honest, they beat Tampa, but like Tampa gave that game away. Tampa missed, what, three breakaways in the third period, and then Hedman threw... Hedman basically opened up a pizzeria with 30, sec- 30 seconds left in Toronto. Uh, ta- Cooper, after the game, just said this didn't even feel like a Leaf win. This felt like a Tampa loss. That That's 100% how Tampa was feeling. I think the more that you play those good teams, you're going to just sit there and say they need a real top six forward. I think it's going to be super obvious. I would almost also argue that they should really, as much as I would love a third line center, I would probably move heaven and earth to bring in another defenseman of consequence. I'd use those assets on a top six forward as well, but I I want him playing on the third line. That's kind of my argument because I think Matthews does so good of a job of carrying a guy like Bunting or in years past Hyman to the point where... I don't think you need a first-line caliber player on his wing. Would that make the line better? Obviously it would. But here's the thing. How well do you think Matthews and Bunting are doing together? 
What do you think their scoring chance share is at 5-on-5 five five this year in 174 minutes together? What percent of the scoring chances do you think they're controlling? I was looking around at this last week because I'm also a loser like you. I yeah. thought it was at 61% or something like that. They're 65 62. as of right now. Yeah. 66 expected fine. goals. That's that's fine. <laughs> but it's pretty damn good. It, th- this is see, this is where I'm being a dick. Where it's one of those things where I'm going. I don't think that's real in the playoffs. Well, you use the regular season as a. It, you get 82 games of data to evaluate players, and Matthews is carrying this line. I don't think Bunting's the reason for those results. I think it's Matthews in his prime at age 24, being on the ice and dominating play. I think Matthews is a disgusting hockey player. That's pretty much what that is. But my point is, you can have bunting there. I think you can have bunting there, and it still be one of the best lines in hockey. I think, yeah, over the course of 82 games, yes. But over the course of your trying to win in the playoffs... You're matching up against Marshan Bergeron-Pasternak? Yeah, and the way that I think Keefe is going to still run it in the playoffs, which is going to be the way that he's run it every year in the playoffs, which is to say that top line is going to play a ton. I don't think you have a guy like bunting there i think you need a legit weapon on that line jt miller thomas hurdle philip forsberg insert first line caliber nhl forward yeah and then there's you know and as much as i love hyman he only has something something around five points in his last 19 playoff games as a leaflet he was not productive all right ready to go really nerdy we went nerdy with the scoring chances expected goals there points per 60 hyman when he played with matthews at five on five and we have over 2,500 minutes of this. It's a huge sample. 1.8 points per 60. That's good. That's good. Bunting's at 2.5 right now. I think it's going to fall down a bit. I think it will, but he's producing, and he's producing more than Hyman did at 5-5. Five five. What's he on pace for? 20-plus goal, 50-ish point season, which is great. I'm not sure if he gets that. I mean, if he plays the rest Probably of the season not. attached to Matthew's hip, he might. And that's that's kind of the Connor Sheary, Chris Kunitz... Uh, Pascal Dupuis, like, playing alongside an elite talent, you you get more points. That's just the way it works. That was the original Hyman thing where it's just go to the net and Matthews will shoot enough and enough of them were, will either land on your stick or go off your ankle and in the net. And the thing about Bunting's points right now is it's not like he's on a shooting percentage bender the same way Alex Kerfoot is right now. And I don't. it's not that they're all secondary assists and you know that's going to fall off. It seems like he's doing this in a repeatable way. I don't think he's going to keep scoring at an elite first-line rate, but if he drops down to around a second-line rate, I think he'll still be above what Hyman's done in his tenure with the Leafs, at least offensively. I don't think he's as good as Hyman at winning puck battles, at defensively staying above the other team's play, uh, you know, going up against the other team's best players and preventing chances against, preventing odd man rushes against. I think Hyman's the better overall 200-foot player. But the fact that the first line is able to dominate play this much and Bunting's able to score at such a high rate alongside Matthews, I love that. And I want to keep Bunting there so that you can use your more talented players down the lineup. Yeah, I think that's fine. I think ultimately, and I'm not talking about Bunting will be fine there through to like March. My hesitation for him once the playing fields dwindles down to the really good teams and the Leafs will have a very difficult path, right? Boston has been very good at five. They've been basically elite at five on five. They have they are thirtieth in five on five save percentage. I'm sure they are on the phone with Tuca every day, 
You mentioned it earlier, but Florida has zero holes. They have three or four lines that can attack you off the rush. I love their decor, love their goaltending. Florida's rolling, and Barkoff's not playing. And when they're healthy, they throw Reinhardt on the third line like it ain't shit. And that's what I want the Leafs to do. I want them to acquire a player of that caliber and throw him on the third line. I I mean, technically, they could do it with Nylander and Kerfoot. No, I don't want Nylander playing in the third line. That's going to result in him playing like 14 minutes in a playoff game. And then you have... Obviously, Tampa. And Tampa is a tough one for me to judge. You can look at their numbers and whatever, and they're all fine. But Kucherov is, for my money, I think he's the third, at least a top three player in the game. Yeah, I mean, you have McDavid one, obviously. And I go McKinnon, Matthews, Kucherov. That's kind of my tier. I have Drysaddle a a step below those guys because I think he's so bad defensively, but apparently it doesn't matter. He is, but he's so good (laughs) offensively. (laughs) Drysaddle has the best one-timer off the rush I think I've ever seen in my entire life. He's basically using a canoe paddle. I, I don't know how to explain his stick. His blade just is a weapon. Someone had a tweet where it said, like, a Drysaddle takes, like, two strides... Uh, you know, doesn't back check, stands in the same spot. Puck's, puck comes to him, makes an impossible pass. Boom, there's one assist for him. <laughs> Next shift, yeah. he's out there. Oh, it takes two or three strides, doesn't really do much. Puck comes to him, boom, puts it top corner off of a one-timer. Now he's at two points. And it's like, he, he makes this look easy. What's he doing? <laughs> okay, so Kucherov, just, just because it's hilarious. In his last full season, he did play 82 games. He tossed up 128 points. Yep. And then the next year in the playoffs, they won the cup. He had 34 and 25. And then last year when they won again, he had 32 and 23. I mean, this guy's just insane. And the way he runs that power play, it's it's very repeatable. It's very, yeah. okay, if you take away the Braden Point pass, he's going to one-time it himself. If you take away the, the seam pass to Stamkos, oh, yeah, he also has Victor Hedman there at the point. There's so many options for him on that power play. And I get that they lost Yanni Gordon. I get that they lost Blake Coleman and all this stuff, but... The, the core is still largely there. And this is also why I hate the cap. Because, to be honest, I don't like cups where it's there's like a weird transition year. And you just go, this happened to be the team that got hot at the right time. That ruins it for me. It's like Anthony, St. We, Louis's cup. Anthony, we need more cup. parody in this sport. You know, hockey, it's... Who gives a shit about the St. Louis Cup? Nobody does. Other than the people that live in St. Louis. Nobody else. That is... People have probably already forgotten that they won a cup recently. I think the reason I like that cup is because weren't they a bottom three team in the league after a couple months into the season? They were in like last at like December. Yeah. It was wild. And then they turned things around. I think that's a a great reason for a team with a lot of talent who is underperforming what their roster talent says. It's a great example to say, don't blow it up because you should believe in the talent you have. I like it for that reason. I respect all those things. The fact that they beat Boston, inject that right in my veins. All that stuff, great stuff. But it's an unforgettable, like it's a forgettable cup. But, you know, the old LA, we've talked about this before, the old LA Chicago series, unbelievable. The Chicago Philly Stanley Cup final, unbelievable. Nah, Detroit. kind of a forgettable team there. No, that Philly team was amazing. They had Michael Layden in that. With Chris Pronger and Richards and Jeff Carter and Simone Gagne and playoff Briere, that team was Wayne sick. Wayne Simmons in his prime, Giroux running the power. Timo Timonen, that was a sick team. I love that team. Just Michael Layden was their Timo Timonen when you're talking about the most watchable teams? Interesting. Interesting. Man, Timo Timonen was sick, <laughs> right? So, 
you know, the but you know, Detroit, Pittsburgh. All that to say is I wanted to slay the dragon. I don't want to hear, you know, when someone eventually beats Tampa, it's well, they got rid of Gord, they couldn't afford Gord and they couldn't keep Coleman and all this shit. I mean, I love super teams. It makes sports more fun, but the NHL doesn't like fun. Yeah, and that's what bothers me. I love I love seeing a team turn into some sick dynasty. But then I want to see some team just work day and night to beat them. And to beat that one team where they sit there at the start of every season, they go, we know we're going to play them. And we don't care. And we're going to figure out a way to win. I love the fear, that shit. The fear of that is that you have a Warriors-Cleveland Cavaliers situation where you it's predetermined. It was sick, go though. That was a sick... That was a sick but the series. regular season didn't matter at all. And every basketball fan, myself included, just tuned out because it didn't matter. You knew who was going to be in the finals. Of course, but it forced teams to get better in terms of what they were doing and the product they were putting out there. It really did. Did it? I think it almost forced so. pretty good teams to tank because they knew they weren't great. Those teams, I think, tank. But I think if you look at the product now and how many really good teams there are in the league, I think that's a direct byproduct of what was laid down by Cleveland and Golden State as to the standard of what they should be as a basketball team. I don't think teams thought that they should be that good 10 years ago. And then when Golden State in particular did what they did, I think teams started saying, we will stop at nothing. You know, before teams would be like, we're good. I don't know, man. I feel like it was only really one team that like really built a team to try to go up against them, the Houston Rockets. And they almost did it. If not I mean, they, for they 23 missed three-pointers in a row, they would have done it. But if it wasn't for the injury, injury in game six, if, yep. if it wasn't for the injury, they probably would have done it. Yeah. But all that, I think elite teams raise the bar. I would love to see that more in the NHL. I would love to see the Leafs, obviously as a Leaf fan, any Leaf fan who says otherwise is kidding themselves. I would love to see the Leafs throw, throw around more money where it's like, oh, JT Miller has another year at 5.25. Who gives a shit? We're going to add Claude Giroux and Philip Forsberg at the deadline because screw it. (laughs) Yeah, right? We don't care. We don't care. We're going all in. We don't care. The Stephen A. Smith. (laughs) We don't care. I wish it was possible. I really do because I love the sport. I like fun. I like watching talented players on the ice together. And there's a limit to it because of the salary cap. And that's why I like having a Michael Bunting at $900,000 doing what he's doing on that first line. He's great. I just think... And and if you want to look last year, and I know you're die, you'll always die on the Taylor Hall Hill. But if you want to look back and say they didn't have enough scoring, I think at some point you have to sit there and say this sh- this has to be the target. It's not to sit there with 950k Michael Bunting, who's doing an admirable job. It's to sit there and, and say we need another weapon. And all that when say the, we're when for the Bunting, space goes away, when the games tighten up, we need someone who can alleviate some of that pressure on Matthews and actually do something with the space that he's opening up. I think I think Bunting is a guy you want lower down in the lineup, but you can actually sit there and say he's capable of chipping in a big goal and a big moment. I guess my argument is if you can have a, a elite first line with Michael Bunting on it, that allows you to put the the player that you're trying to acquire you can throw them on your second or third line, and now you have more scoring depth, which is something the Leafs haven't had this year. I just think they're. I think the numbers are good because Matthews and Marner have. They had to rebound. It was just inevitable. Pittsburgh's Cup when they won with Crosby, Malkin, and Kessel, each of them quarterbacked a line. I'd like to see a bit more of that. Yeah, and and you brought up Sheary, and that that was my only other thing I was going to mention about Bunting. It's not to pick on the guys, just to have an honest conversation about what's happening is 
He just, I don't see any discernible skill. Drawing penalties is a skill, my friend. That is a skill. <laughs> I, I actually think that that's going to dry up very soon. Because the refs are going to realize that he's diving a little bit. Yeah. He's going to get Kadri'd so hard at some point. Hey, Kadri was consistently among the leaders in that for years. Same with Dustin And then Brown. it fell off a cliff. And it wasn't because Naz stopped drawing penalties. It was because refs eventually... There was in, against that, that same Islanders game where Kasha went diving into the net up 3 nothing with a minute <laughs> left. Bunting had a stick go near his face and snapped his neck back so hard. I thought he, he was going to get whiplash. real easy. He'll, he'll cross-check the crap out of someone, and then when he someone touches his skate, he just drops. And Leaf players are already joking about it in the media, and this is the worst place for that kind of stuff it's to go under the radar. It's the biggest market, you know, a lot of yeah. eyeballs on him. I can see what you're saying. That penalty-drawing skill come March, come April, late in a playoff game when out. refs are already putting their whistles away, I don't know if Bunting's getting the calls anymore. That's a fair point. I'll never for my life get over the Naz suspension for DeBrusque. Who's I was, now I was about to say which one when you said the Naz suspension. The DeBrusque one, <laughs> which who's now asked for a trade. I'm going, they suspended Naz an entire playoff series for running the scrub that tried to take out his knee and who didn't miss a game, but Naz missed the rest of the series? It's bullshit. The Toronto effect is real. Anyone who thinks otherwise is kidding. He did it's, it in Colorado, it, It's genuinely too. real. He, he, yeah. he took a run at someone in a playoff series in Colorado and took himself out of that series. I thought that one was much worse, though. I didn't think what he... I think what happened with DeBrusque was way less than what it was made out to be. I think the refs lost control that game a long time ago. The league had to be accountable to the officiating they put out. But they'll they, never they do were that. those those officials didn't officiate anymore in the playoffs after that they didn't officiate round two round three or, or Stanley Cup final yeah so there's an admittance of guilt without like an admittance of common sense to say uh, you know what maybe the refs just shit their pants this game and like hey we don't usually went, ran see, a little high we rarely see ref accountability so I was actually kind of glad that something happened after that yeah what's uh there's um an Italian college hockey coach what he, what was the saying <laughs> It's like there's three things I'll never see in life. Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and a ref admitting he made a mistake. <laughs> Personally, I never make mistakes. I don't know about you, Anthony. David Camp, baby. David Camp. Travis Dermott, David Camp. Does anyone else come to mind immediately? I know you're going to want to say Taylor Hall, but... I... No, I mean, hey, I... Hey, early on in the season, I was sitting there going, I think Keith might be a game or two away at this point. Like, it was getting there. Corsi leaders on New Jersey right now. Corsi leaders on New Jersey this year. Dougie Hamilton won. Thomas Tatar two, baby. What's Hughes doing? I can't believe they paid him that much money. What's interesting about him is that if you look at all the zone entry, passing metrics, a lot of the stuff that's predictive of a guy who's about to break out, they're all phenomenal. They're all like 95th, 98th, 99th percentile. It's just the production hasn't been there and he hasn't learned how to shoot. They're betting on the talent, and I think they're going to be right. He looked like he was poised for a breakout year before he went down with the injury. So even though I think it's a more or less, I don't want to say dumb contract, but how did he make more than Svechnikov coming off of his ELC? That doesn't make any sense to me. It's free money what happened there. That was free money. It reminded me of, uh, I'm drawing a blank right now, Arizona, Clayton Keller. Clayton Keller contract, where... Even though you're clearly betting on the player to improve and to eventually be worth that money, nothing in his past has indicated that he deserves it when you compare him to other players coming off of their ELCs. So I'm all for betting on young talent, and I'm all for locking up a guy through his prime. I just don't get why you have to pay so much for it when the comps weren't getting that much. 
This reminds me of the Leafs in a lot of ways. <laughs> we give the Leafs shit for it all the time. You have to grind these contracts down, especially when you hold a player's contractual rights. Maybe it's the you first overall pick down. aspect of things. I don't know. Does that mean Rasmus Dahlin's about to sign an 8x8? Because he doesn't deserve it. No. Buffalo's ruining him. Sad. So, on that note, Sabres suck, <laughs> Uplifting as per them. usual. I, the Sabres sucking is always uplifting. There will be never a point in my life as a Leaf fan in the history of being a Leaf fan that I will ever feel bad for the Buffalo Sabres. They can suck for all of eternity. I will never feel bad. Owen Powers doing what? disgusting things in college hockey right now. So there's Owen that. Powers is gross, so he's going to walk into the league next year and be unreal. But for the time being, I am going to just absolutely, like a pig in mud, just love Buffalo sucking. And if you've been mm-hmm. a Leaf fan for like more than a decade, you know exactly what I mean. You know exactly what it was like when those Sundin teams late in the Sundin era went to Buffalo those t- with against Ryan Miller Sabers. I loved those Buffalo teams. Oh my God, those Briere Vanek, like great teams. Yeah. Great, super fun teams. Brian Campbell. But the amount of times that they pulled a, out of a three nothing or whatever it was deficit against the Leafs, or they just curb stomp them, and they did it time after time after time. Fuck that team. To All think right? that the I Buffalo Sabers had Ryan O'Reilly and Jack Eichel. As their centers of the future. That was going to be your first line, second line. You have an offensive line, a checking line. Is that good? I thought that that was going to be the Austin Matthews-Jack Eichel rivalry. We're going to see it in the playoffs. And then they traded Ryan O'Reilly because Casey Middlestack could replace him. Jesus Christ, man. NHL GMs are not infallible. Just remember that. I, I went to his debut. It was against Toronto. I just happened to be at that game. I remember texting my friend halfway through the first. I don't know why people think this guy's good. He kind of sucks. He never produced at 5-on-5. Five I mean, other than high school, which yeah. doesn't count. There's, you know, you always feel weird about it. Sometimes you watch a guy instantly, and you you sit there and go, "Okay, he's nasty." And then sometimes you sit there and watch a guy. And he, you know, it was the first time I watched Matthews in the World Championships live. That that game where he and McDavid scored right away. I was, okay, Matthews is not that it was ever for debate, but he's elite of elite. And Middlestat was the exact opposite in a nondescript Leaf Sabers game. Three shifts in, I was going, "Okay, this guy sucks." Not, he's an, not going to be a problem. Mine is Andrew Nielsen, because remember, his stats were always pretty good uh, in terms of point production. And he's a big power boy. Play. Mike Babcock said that he really liked him because he's big and he's strong and he's mean. I saw Six him play once shift. live. I went I went down to Rico and saw him play. I, I, I was talking to one of my friends. I said, he can't skate. Uh, this, this guy's yeah. never going to make it. He can't skate. And that was one of my things. Uh, random story there. I think I've told it on this pod before, so I'm just repeating myself. We're out of stories. We're out of time. All right, we'll see you guys next week when I tell a great story about Cody Franson, P.A. Parento. Is anyone else on my list of guys that I randomly bring up for no reason? I mean, you haven't, but Brad Boys probably. Uh, he's not one of my boys. Maybe Mark Arcabella. <laughs> if you talk about Mark Arcabella, I'm going to punch you through this computer screen. Dude, you should have seen his hero chart back in the day. I, nasty. Man, I swear to God, you talk about that <laughs> shit one more time. We got to get out of here. Take it like, easy, guys. subscribe, all that stuff. <laughs> all right. We'll be back next week. And I, w- I do want to break down the Leafs power play in detail. So we'll do that next week. Uh, Anthony's less optimistic than me, but I-, I can't wait to do a big deep dive on it because it's so much better than last year's. Last year's was a tire fire down the stretch, and this year's is actually looking decent. Have a good week, everyone.